All right, if you'll take your Bibles, please. Open them up to the book of Hebrews. As I currently understand what the Lord is doing, this is our last week in Hebrews chapter 6. So, we are preparing to move on to Hebrews 7. And uh, a lot of excitement there, I know. Um, So if you'll turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 6. We'll begin again at verse 19. Join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we begin to consider the person of Melchizedek, the ministry, the priesthood, the reality of who he is. And God, we just pray that you would give us clarity and understanding, Father. It is wondrous. It is glorious. It is also challenging. So, Father, in the midst of it, we pray that your truth and your spirit would be upon us. Give us wisdom and understanding. Give us clarity. And let Christ be honored in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> so we come at last to this figure who looms in the center of Hebrews, Melchizedek. He's a mystery. He is an enigma. And scholars are divided in all sorts of ways about just exactly who Melchizedek is. And we'll have a lot of time to consider it. A lot of time to unpack that. But I think that we're given enough clues and hints that we can see through the veil and see that we do indeed know him. We know him by another name, and that name is none other than the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, in a pre-incarnate appearance. We see the writer of Hebrews returning to his theme, that the old priesthood has been superseded, but with a slight twist. By referring to Melchizedek, we see that the priesthood was actually superseded even before it began. It was a placeholder, a preparation for the coming of the Son. For this one of the order of Melchizedek is the true priest of God, and is now and has always been the only true access to him. Now all of these points are going to be more fully developed in the chapters to come, but it will help us to have an idea, to look at the lay of the land, and to see what's before us as we venture in. Um, If you're rendering out into the wilderness, it's always best to have a map and a compass and to know how to use them. So we're going to kind of consider today's message to be sort of a map for what is to come. We'll try and understand just what is meant by Jesus being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So the very first thing that we understand is that we don't understand a whole lot about him. We're, we're told in Genesis, and in fact, we need to turn there. Turn to Genesis chapter 14. And I'm going to read to you everything <clears throat> that we know definitely about Melchizedek in the whole of the Old Testament. Now, there's a few other little places where he's mentioned and referenced, but it always comes back to this encounter. So, I hope you brought lunch, because it's a whole lot. Genesis chapter 14, we're going to start at verse 18. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now that's Abram gave to Melchizedek a tithe of all. Now what is that tithe referencing? That is referencing the fact that Abram had just come in with his army of servants and they had eradicated the five kings who had come against Sodom and Gomorrah and carried away the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Abram's family lot. And so where five kings couldn't beat these guys, Abram with his trained servants and the power of God did great damage to them. Now, I told you there's a lot there, and there's a lot in there, but 
I want you to pay attention to what it doesn't tell us about Melchizedek. It doesn't tell us where he came from. It doesn't tell us who he really is. It calls him Melchizedek. It told us he was the king of Salem. But Salem's not a city that's mentioned in that region. It's not a city that we can point to and say, here it was and there it is. We don't know much about him. Now, interestingly enough, Salem is also the name Peace. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7, we'll get to it, tells us that the king of Salem is translated meaning king of peace. Who do we know who carries the name king of peace? Jesus. The name Melchizedek itself means king of righteousness. Who do we know who carries the name king of righteousness? Jesus. So we have a hint about who this Melchizedek is. And there's a lot more here that we'll get to in due time. But what's important is that Melchizedek is given to us as a priest of God, absent of the lineage which would give him the right to be a priest of God. Because the Jews were very big on lineage. God had assigned the role of the priesthood to the family of Abram, to the tribe of Levi, to the specific descent of Aaron were to be the high priests. And yet here we have this man completely apart from that lineage, completely outside of it, who is acknowledged as a priest of God, and who Abram, the father of all of the people of Israel, pays homage to. And you could even interpret this to be that he gave worship to, because worship does occur here. And the giving an offering, the giving of a tithe, that's an act of worship. So Abram is acknowledging the, the superiority of Melchizedek, but he's acknowledging the superiority of Melchizedek outside of any reference to where Melchizedek came from. Now, I know that's hard for us to get our heads around here in the U.S. of A. Because we are a nation that prides itself on taking men on their own worth and their own work, at least we used to, and, uh, and their own abilities, and, and we don't really look at where their family came from. We don't have a royal family in this land. Um, people are kind of taken on their own merit. But to the Jew... Part of who you are, a large part of who you are, is where you come from. And the people that made you who you were and the descent and the lineage that that was your birthright and was your heritage was incredibly important to them. And so to acknowledge that Abram didn't need all that and gave homage to Melchizedek is huge. This This is a very strange thing that Melchizedek is honored as a priest without a human lineage, but... Interestingly enough, so is Jesus. Turn with me to Genesis, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3. Actually, let's start in Matthew. We're going to look at both Luke and Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. And we're just going to read one verse out of the genealogy of Jesus. Verse 16 of Luke chapter 1 says, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Okay, hold your place there. And look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 says this. I'm sorry, that should be... um, That is not 23. I got the wrong thing. Yeah, 23. I'm sorry. I finally read the first part of the verse. (laughs) Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now wait a minute. Look back at Matthew. Who was Joseph's father? What's it say? Joseph's father was Jacob. But Luke says, Joseph was the son of Heli. Is this one of those contradictions in the Bible that you hear tell about? No. Heli was Mary's father. So Jesus was born assuming of Joseph. But as soon as he says of Joseph, this is assumed, he then shifts and gives the lineage of Mary. The whole lineage is different. The entirety of of what's being given is a different family. And this is important for us to note because the right to be a priest would have come 
through the family of his father, if Joseph had been of the tribe of Levi. Joseph was not of the tribe of Levi. Joseph was of the tribe of Jacob. I mean, of of (laughs) Judah. Wow. (laughs) Joseph was of the tribe of Judah. His father was Jacob. Mary's father was Heli. But Heli's family was also of the tribe of Judah. Jesus had no physical right or descent to be a priest. He was a priest without a priestly lineage. Okay? And this is important to us because this references us back to Melchizedek. And the idea of this being important is because this supersedes the Aaronic line of the priesthood. Nobody was allowed to be a high priest who didn't descend from Levi and specifically descend from Aaron. Those genealogies were traced out very carefully. And no one was permitted to be the high priest who actually offered the sacrifice unless they were the descent of Aaron. But Melchizedek, a priest of God, we're told later on in chapter 7 and chapter 8 that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, this order that transcends the Aaronic priesthood. And he has the right to offer the real sacrifice of the high priest. Because Levi was still in the loins of Abram when Abram gave honor to Melchizedek. So what he's saying is that this honor that was given to Melchizedek by Abram, Levi was included in that. And Levi was acknowledging, and through Levi, Aaron was acknowledging that Melchizedek was superior to them, that they were then being priests under him as a season when Melchizedek wasn't there to do his job. So that's how that transfers, and that's how that passes through. He was already doing what he did. This this is important to understand, that Melchizedek was established as a priest of God before Abram met him. Amen? Amen? He was there doing what he was doing. He was being the king of Salem. He was honoring, if, if, if this predates and, and we see this happening, this, this incarnation of Christ, this, this pre-incarnate person of Christ, he was doing what he was doing before Abram met him. Abram came and, and met him, gave homage to him, gave, gave credence to him as a priest. And this is important for us because then the line of Melchizedek is older than the line of Aaron. It's older than the line of Levi. It's older than the line of Abram. This is important, especially to the Jew who wants to think that there should be a return to the Old Testament law. This is the conflict that we find throughout all of the Old Testament, all the New Testament, excuse me, is this idea that there must be a return to the Old Testament law, that the sacrifices still had to be done, that the Jews were the people of God only, and that the Gentiles who wanted to become Christians must first become Jews, obey the sacrificial system, submit to the law. This was the fight throughout the whole of the New Testament. Paul struggled against these. The writer of Hebrews is struggling against these. And over and over and over again, we see the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament law, over the Judaic system of worship. And in the end, we also understand that if Melchizedek was functioning as the priest of God, he had access to God that was not contingent upon the Old Testament law. He had access to God that predates the access that was set up and established for the Jews. So we have Melchizedek showing us that he didn't need a lineage, that he didn't need um, the, the honor of Abraham to make him what he was. He was already doing it that he had authority to come into the presence of God prior to anything else going on. And this authority to come into the presence of God is absolutely based in who he is. This is because he was without any human superior. So he didn't have a human lineage that would lead us to say, oh yes, of course I understand how you can do this job because you are the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. He didn't have a human lineage. But he also didn't have a human superior. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 110. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord shall send out the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauty of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink by the brook of the wayside. And therefore, he shall lift up the head. So what we see is that this psalm, first of all, is very clearly messianic. This psalm points to Christ. It points right to Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 and 8. Um, it, it points to who Christ is. It points to what Christ has come to do. And as a messianic psalm, it tells us something about the character of this priesthood of Melchizedek. And it tells us, first of all, that this priesthood will be a royal priesthood because everything is going to be put under his footstool. In other words, he is going to rule over the whole of creation without any exception. All of his enemies, all of his people will be put under his footstool. And not just in a, in a manner of, I have more power than you do, therefore you will do what I tell you. But notice what he says, your people will be volunteers in the day of your power. Now, what does that word volunteer mean? It means it's something you want to do. They'll be willing. Your people will be made willing in the day of your power. That's what it's telling us. Now, this is important to us because none of us want to submit to God based on our own desires. We're all born against God. We're all born rebels against his will and against his authority and against his power. We're all born God-haters. But God overcomes that in us and transforms our hearts and makes us live. And when he makes us live, he gives us a new perspective on the world. He gives us a new perspective on what's right and what's wrong. He gives us a new perspective on himself. And he causes us to come to him willingly and say, Lord, please forgive me. Our willingness follows his power. Our willingness follows on the trail of regeneration. It's what God does. And so not only does he rule over his enemies with might and power, but he rules over his people and has the authority and the right to cause us to do everything that he wants us to do and to cause us to do it willingly. It becomes our desire. It becomes our want. Lord, I want to please you. I want to do what you tell me to do. He has both the right and the power to rule and to govern all of creation. Now, it also tells us that as this kingly priest, he will have the right and the power to judge the nations. He will have the right and the power to judge all things. Now, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So who is it that has the authority and the right and is ordained by God to judge all things? It's Christ. This is pointing to the priesthood of Christ as is displayed in the priesthood of Melchizedek. And in the end, he also has in himself the final dispensation of peace. So we see this, this, this psalm ends with this declaration of him um, eviscerating his enemies and crushing them and executing the heads of the nations and all those that oppose him. And then it says he will drink by the brook and he will lift up the head. Now what's that speaking of? Peace after the conflict. In the end, peace only comes when everything is at peace with each other. As long as there are those who are hating God, final peace is not possible. And God will establish that in the day of his power. He will bring all the people who are his own unto himself through the person and through the ministry of Christ. And in doing that, he will also bring to himself all those who oppose him and banish them forever to the place of his wrath. And there will be peace in his presence. All of creation will be held under the sway of the power and the glory of God. And all of this happens, and in, in light of how we have to see who Christ is in light of him being, according to the order of Melchizedek, there's no human being above him which gives him the power to do this. And there's no human being above him which can thwart him doing what he is setting out to do. 
So all of the nations rage and cry and do their best to struggle against God and to struggle against His Son and to exert their will against His power and against His dominion. But in the end, what will happen? They will fail. All the plots, all the plans, all of the strivings, all of the efforts of the nations to exert their will over God will come to nothing. That's an important thing for us to remember because right now in the middle of it, it doesn't quite feel that way, does it? Right now in the middle of it, it feels like we're on the losing side. Every time we turn around, somebody else is asserting their power and asserting their strength and asserting their ability and asserting their ability to do what God tells them not to do. We are engaged in the midst of a month given to rebellion. And you know what? God sits on his throne and laughs. He will have his way. And and it doesn't feel like that to us in this moment. But we need to understand that what God says is true, is true. And what God says is real, is real. And what God says is right, is right. And no man has to tell him, yes, God, you may determine what is right. No man has to tell Jesus, yes, Jesus, I give you permission to rule. No man has to tell Jesus, yes, Jesus, I give you permission to judge the earth. These things will happen because of who he is. And he has the final authority and he has the final ability to set the world right according to what he has intended it to be. And he does all of this without any human superior or any human lineage. And he also does it without any human intervention. He doesn't need anybody else to give him permission to do what he's going to do, but he also doesn't need anybody else to give him permission to access God. One of the things that happened when the priests were ordained as the priest is that the other religious leaders and the other leaders of Israel would come and would anoint them and would ordain them for the job that they were being called to do. That was this passing of the torch. They were given this responsibility, given this right. And in doing that, there was this conferring of, yes, this is legitimate, yes, this is right, yes, this is legal, we have said it is so, and therefore it is so. Now, that doesn't happen with the priesthood of Melchizedek. He doesn't need anybody else to give him permission to come to God. So let's ask the question, who has in themselves permission to come to God? Well, interestingly enough, the scripture gives us an answer. Look with me at Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? There's the question. Verse verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. So what's the short answer to who has the right in themselves to come into the presence of God? Somebody who is completely righteous. Anybody qualify? Only one. And that one is Jesus Christ. He alone has the right in himself to enter into the presence of God. Now he had that right before he was incarnate because he was God the second person. He has always been God the Son, eternally generated of the Father. This is a theological truth that is hard to understand, so if you worry about it, just take it at what it says in Scripture. Jesus has always been God. He always will be God. And he has always been with the Father. But, from a human perspective, Jesus also uniquely has the right to enter into the presence of God because Jesus, of all the people on the earth, was sinless. 
He never sinned. He had no sins of his own to atone for. He had no sins of his own that would be a barrier to God. And therefore, as a human, as a perfect human, the incarnate Son of God, but as a human, he has the right, and by the way, he executed the right, to enter boldly into the presence of God based upon who he is and what he did. And if we read on the rest of this psalm, we have this remarkable picture of the messianic triumph of Jesus, our high priest. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong in battle. Strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. That Lord of hosts, the Hebrew there is Sabaoth. It is a name specifically given to Jesus. Who is this King of glory? It is Jesus Christ. And as he entered into heaven as a man slain and sacrificed, he entered in with the blood of the sacrifice and stepped into the throne room of God. And what the psalmist gives us is a picture of all of heaven crying out, Wait! There's a man coming up and opening the gates. Who is this man who dares to do this thing? And the answer immediately comes forth. This is the king of glory coming to his right. He is entering into the presence of God with the blood of his own covenant. And he is going to sacrifice or he's going to offer the blood of that sacrifice upon the altar of God's mercy. He doesn't need anybody else to give him permission. Nobody else has to give him the authority to do what he came to do. Nobody else has to have any part in it whatsoever. This is the work of Jesus from start to finish. And this is his right and prerogative without anybody else giving permission or approval or help. He didn't need anybody's help to finish this. He didn't need anybody's help to accomplish this. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 The first four verses we've read several times in the context of Jesus being the final word of God, but there's something hidden in here that I don't know if we've drawn out. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who who helped him? Nobody. He had by himself purged our sins. This was his work and his work alone. There is no co-mediator. There is no co-mediatrix. There is no co-redemptor. There is no co-redemptrix. There is no co-intercessor or co-intercessrix or co-anything. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And it has always been Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He has by himself purged our sins and established us as acceptable in the sight of God by the right of his own sacrifice on our behalf. Beloved, this is his glory. And he doesn't need anybody else to give him the right to do it. There is nobody who's going to stand over him and say, I convey upon thee the opportunity to make these things happen. There's nobody who's going to intervene or stop him There's nobody who's going to come alongside him and help him. He does this because this is who he is. This is Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God made flesh, coming to be slain for his own people, to pay the price for our redemption. And beloved, the minute that we try to inject anything or anybody else into it, we deny him 
and we deny what he's done. He does everything that he does without human lineage, human superior, human intervention, and also without human weakness. One of the problems of the Old Testament priesthood is that they didn't get to do it for very long. We read in Numbers chapter 10 just last week, um, I'm sorry, a few weeks ago, it was in chapter 8, that the priests who were ordained to serve had a very limited window of their service. Um, Numbers chapter 8, verses 24 and 25 says, This pertains to the Levites. From 25 years old and above, one may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And at the age of 50 years, they must cease performing this work, and they shall work no more. So what that was saying was that the window of opportunity for the priests to enter in and do the service of serving the tabernacle, being high priest, all these sort of things, it was a 25-year span when they could fill their post as high priest or as, as priests serving in the temple. And after that, they were to stop. Well, Jesus was 33 when he was slain. So he's inside that window. But does that mean then that 17 years later, he stopped being our priest? Can it mean that? No, because he was a priest forever. He's not a priest according to the Mosaic system, according to the Aaronic priesthood. He is a priest according to the line of Melchizedek, who was a priest without beginning as far as we know and without end as far as we know. He is the eternal priest who offers an eternal sacrifice. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 Starting at verse 12. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12 says this. And we'll start at verse 11. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This sacrifice that Jesus made is an eternal sacrifice. It is a once for all, once and done. No more will anybody ever need to sacrifice anything to redeem anybody unto God. You do not need to go out and buy a goat and kill it and offer the blood and the fat and the, and the innards so that God will accept you. Now all the goat farmers in the land went, oh man, but that's the truth. The reality is, is that the sacrifice that bought us has been paid and is fully, finally, completely accomplished and accepted by God, period. There will never be a time when we will ever return to God receiving people based on any other sacrifice but Jesus Christ. Now, I said it before, I'll say it again, all this hoopla over the reconstruction of the Jewish temple so that the sacrificial system can begin again so that the Jews will be saved by returning to the Old Testament law, it's lies. And it's lies from the pit of hell. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is our sacrifice and he will only be our sacrifice for all of eternity. There is no other, there is no need for another, and there is no room for another. He is the eternal priest who successfully perfected everyone who is being saved. By his own blood, he purged our sins. By his own blood, he took away our guilt. And he is the eternal priest who himself will never die. You see, that was the other hang-up. If a priest lived long enough to come to the end of his service, he would retire. But if he didn't, well... Then he died. Now what do you do? You don't have a priest. You need to appoint somebody new. This is never going to happen with Jesus. 
Jesus is not a priest according to the line of Moses and Aaron and the law of the Old Testament. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 12 says, This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. That's what we referenced in Psalm 24. For by one offering... He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. He is the eternal sacrifice who has died and has been raised again for our justification. Romans 4.25 tells us that he was raised because of, or delivered because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Beloved, You need to stand on this ground. You need to stand firmly on this ground. Because there is no shortage of people and circumstances and thinking that wants you to confess that Jesus is just not enough. There's no shortage of people that wants you to turn to Jesus plus something else. There's no shortage of ideas and theologies that wants you to say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in these things. And we need to understand at the core of it that all of these things that people want us to believe in besides Jesus, they will do nothing but damn us. They will do nothing but condemn us. They will do nothing but cast us away because as soon as we do not believe in Christ, we are confessing that we have never believed in Christ. We are confessing that we are not His. Beloved, this is earnest. This is blood-earnest stuff. You have to recognize that it is in Jesus alone that your hope is found. He is the sacrifice, and he is the only reason that you will ever be accepted into the presence of God. Now, Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which means that he is without human lineage. He is without human intervention. He is without human assistance. He is without human, I've messed up my outline, (laughs) superior intervention and weakness. He is also without human insufficiencies. The largest problem with the priesthood of the Old Testament was the priests. Because they were men just like us. And before that priest had the right to come into the presence of God and offer a sacrifice for your sins, He first had to deal with his own sins. He first had to deal with the fact that he was a man who himself has done bad things. But Jesus does not have any sin of his own to atone for. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7, starting at verse 25, it says this. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son, who has been perfected forever. He has no uncleanness to prevent his access to God. And he never has. In John chapter 10, Jesus stated to the Pharisees, I and the Father are one. Now, Was he just saying that I think like God and therefore God and I get along? No, he was confessing that he was God in the flesh. And the Pharisees there understood it because they picked up stones to kill him with. And Jesus said, for which of my good works are you going to try and kill me? And they said, because you just declared yourself to be equal to God, therefore making yourself God. They understood what he was saying. Why don't we? Well, I think that intellectually and truthfully, most people do understand what Jesus was saying. They just don't like it. 
So they want to argue around it. They want to make it into something that it's not. They want to turn his words to be more palatable to them because Jesus, who is God, is unarguable. And Jesus, who is God, is unavoidable. And Jesus, who is God, is frankly just a little bit scary. And he should be. That's why when Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive from him the things done in the body, whether good or ill, the very next verse goes on to say, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We need to understand this. Yes, Jesus is loving. Yes, Jesus is kind. Yes, Jesus has good things for people who come to him. But Jesus is also the judge of the earth who stands in truth and stands in righteousness and says, my law is right and my law will stand and I will not yield on any point of holiness, period. And if you will not come to me and repent and come to me and submit, you will be cast out, period. Our culture doesn't like that Jesus. Our culture wants the Jesus who's wishy-washy, soft on sin, and is perfectly willing to accept them like they are without any change whatsoever, without any need for repentance, without any need for transformation, who, who wants them to stay icky because, well, Jesus himself likes icky, apparently. That's the Jesus our culture likes. But that is not the Jesus of the Bible. That is not the Jesus who is God-made flesh. We need to understand that Jesus has the right to judge the world in righteousness because there is no uncleanness to separate him from the Father. Jesus and God are exactly the same. We serve and worship a triune God. Three persons, one God. God the Father eternal. God the Son eternally generated of the Father. God the Holy Spirit eternally generated of the Father and the Son. The idea is that God is a whole being. And there is no part of him that accepts holy, anything but holiness into his presence. Now, remarkably though, Jesus does stand with that vision of holiness clearly wrapped around himself and at the same time does not hate those who have need. When we come to him and say, Lord, please forgive me, please have mercy, he doesn't cast us off and go, no, 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 you're icky, I don't like you. In fact, in Matthew 23, verse 37, he prayed over the city of Jerusalem saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under its wings, but you were not willing. And when Jesus encountered sinners who were repentant for their sin, who cried out for mercy, he never failed to give it. Think of the woman caught in adultery. What did Jesus say to her? Verse 10 of John chapter 8, Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. He said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So there's the emphasis on holiness, but there's also the emphasis on mercy offered and mercy received. You see, when we come to him and ask for mercy, what we are confessing is, God, I do not deserve what I am asking for. I am guilty of of sin, deserving of your wrath. But I'm asking for mercy because your character tells me to ask for mercy. Because your goodness is such that you will give mercy when I ask for it. And I beg you, God, forgive me, help me, have mercy on me, God. That prayer will never be answered with any word but yes. That prayer will never be answered in any way but God receiving somebody into their presence. But here's what's remarkable. Even when we do not respond appropriately, there is still a sense in which it can be said that Jesus loves. Mark chapter 10, verse 21, the rich young ruler had come to him, asked him what he must be do to be saved. Jesus had said, you read the law and the prophets. What does it say to you? And he said, well, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, honor your mother and father. These I've done from my birth. Verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have. Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and take up the cross and follow me. 
Now, the scripture goes on to tell us that the young man did not do this because he had many possessions. What was Jesus pointing out? What was his sin? He loved his stuff more than he loved God. What was his violation? His violation, aside from the fact that he had actually broken all of those commandments according to what Jesus teaches us elsewhere, we can set that aside for the moment. What was the real sin that Jesus pointed out? He didn't love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't honor God. He violated the first commandment. He had a God besides God. And at the bottom of everything that we do, we have to recognize that when we will not obey God, what we are confessing is that that thing that we would rather do, that is more important to us than God himself. We're confessing who our God really is. And that's a challenging thought for us because we all still do it. Amen? It's a painful thought. It's one we don't like to entertain. But it's one that we have to recognize as true. What the scripture tells us is that Jesus looked at this young man who did not love him at the moment and loved him. Beloved, I don't know how he does this. I wish I could give you a one, two, three, follow these simple steps and you will get this right. All I can say is that the closer we press into him, the more we get of his character, the better we get at this. But we have to learn to stand for truth and holiness at the same time that we extend love to people so that the mercy of God is displayed in full scope and glory. Don't think for one minute that you came to him in any other way. This is why it's so important that we display this, because we've all been beneficiaries of it. We all received him by the same method that we're told to offer him to others, by the mercy of God. And this is why the priesthood of Christ, as a priest of the order of Melchizedek, is so important to us. Because it is a priesthood that is not based upon any human work whatsoever. It is a priesthood based entirely in who God is and what God has done and what God has ordained. And beloved, any plan of salvation that puts human power anywhere in it is a plan of damnation. We have to recognize this. This is God's work from start to finish and there is no room for anything else. Now the wonder of this above all of the other things that we've considered this morning, is that Jesus, knowing what was in front of him, still came. Jesus, knowing what this meant, still submitted to the will of the Father. And he had no bitterness over the actions that were going to be taken against him. Can you understand that? I can't. I can get my head around the facts and I can know that Jesus walking the streets of of Nazareth, seeing the people that he grew up with, even as a boy, with some sense of the knowledge of who he was and what he was about. He had to know at some level that not too many years in the future, those same people would be crying for his blood. He had to know that just a few short years in the future, when he came back to teach in the city of Nazareth where he had grown up, the elders of the city would take him to a high cliff outside the city and try and cast him off. He had to know that the very people who cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, would just a couple of days later be shouting, Crucify him. Free Barabbas. We want that blood-guilty murderer instead of this man who has done nothing but good for us. And in spite of all of that, he wasn't embittered towards them at all. Jesus didn't walk around the streets of Nazareth going, try to push me off a cliff, and zap people. He didn't, he didn't keep a little book and go, oh, crucify him? Okay, I'm marking you off the list. He wasn't embittered about it. He still loved. He came willingly. And in coming willingly, he confesses to us his own heart for us and the heart of the Father for us. Look, everybody wants to make God out to be a bully and a meanie because he does things in a way that is right. Because his will conflicts with our will. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. If God were to submit to our will, 
and let us do whatever we wanted to do. Do you understand that that means that all of mankind would be in hell? That nobody would be saved? Not one single person out of all of humanity would be anywhere but in hell. Isn't it good that God doesn't let us have our way? Isn't it good that God is merciful enough to us to bring us along and bring us around to understand things in a way that is right according to his truth? Because there is no truth but his truth. You don't get to pick a truth and say, well, this is my truth and I'm going to believe my truth. In the end, your truth has to be spelled with a small t and it has to be submitted to the truth of God or it's nothing but self-deception. It's nothing but a lie. You see, Jesus understood what he came to do and he submitted to it even as a man. Matthew 26, 39, he went a little further into the garden, he fell on his face and he prayed and he said, oh, my father, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Beloved, that should be all of our prayer. That should be the place where all of us land. God, I don't like the things that are coming around right now. I don't like the days in which you have ordained me to live. It's an ancient Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. We live in interesting times. And I don't necessarily like them. But if I'm going to honor my God, the only prayer I can have is, Lord, not my will, but yours. Help me be faithful in the days where you have made me to be. And help me be useful for the sake of the King who gave himself for me. My priest, my God, my Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace. And I pray, Lord, that as we commence this study and this understanding of just who this Melchizedek is and what it shows us about Christ, that you would help us to understand that all along, Father, you have been doing what is needful to save a people. Lord, that you have been doing according to your truth and according to your will since before you ever said, let there be light. God, help us understand that at no place in human history has anything ever thwarted you. At no place in all of creation has anything ever thwarted you. God, give us grace to know and to believe that what you say is true, regardless of anything else. And let us lean into the Christ, who is our very reason. In Jesus' name, amen.